we believed it. We believed most importantly in the future of like MarTech and ad tech and digital media. But also number two, probably something to the idea of if you can be you know, zagging when everybody's zigging, you might end up obviously driving disproportionately higher returns. You're listening to Identity Revolution, a podcast from the consumer identity management experts at Infutor Data Solutions. In each episode, we invite industry leaders for data-driven discussions on all things marketing, analytics, and identity. Join us as we take a deep dive into industry trends, strategies, and the future of data technology. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infutor Data Solutions Identity Revolution podcast. My name is Corey Davis. I lead the MarTech, AdTech, and Media vertical here at Infutor, and very, very excited today to have our next guest, Eric Franchi, with us. Eric is a partner at Math Capital, a super active, very active early stage venture capital firm focused on digital transformation of marketing and media. A little over three years, they've invested in, I think I have this right, about 45 companies in areas like CTV, identity, which obviously Infutor loves, commerce media and analytics, with investments in companies like MinoPay, which is acquired by Intercall Ad Science, Audience Town, Gravy Analytics, Hudson MX, ID5, Iris TV, Marpipe, a former guest of ours, Nick Jordan and Narrative IO, Thunder, which is acquired by Walmart, True Data, T Vision Insights, and another guest of ours, Matt Barish, Zeotap. So we're going to be talking the book a little bit here with Eric. Before Math Capital, he was co founder Undertone, which I'm going to call was started out of the ashes of the dot com bubble bust. And so, Eric, appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've spent two minutes of your allotted 20 to 30 talking about our portfolio. (laughs) Thank you. It's a long portfolio. It's a long list. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So I guess to get us started, definitely want to jump into the math capital portfolio, investment thesis, all that kind of stuff. But before we get to that, like, obviously you came from close to 15 years, I guess, or so operating yep. a pretty meaningful, substantial business. I got $100 million annual revenue before selling to Perion in 2015, big publicly traded business. I guess, talk us through that background. Sure. And when you get started. Yeah, absolutely. So short version, Undertone, we started, you very accurately said it, sort of out of the, the depths of the of the dot-com bus. We started our original business, my, my co-founder, Mike Cassie and I, in 2001. It was, was kind of like a little media buying shop before digital media buying shops were a thing. We had some, I think, um, u- unique insight being just sort of like from the internet, from a previous job, we both had, uh, we were sales reps at a company called About.com, which is called uh, Dot Dash now owned by IAC. Anyway, we were a, a big buyer of performance-based ads back then. It was literally such a buyer's market that we were able to buy like display advertising on a CPC because publishers and ad sellers in general literally couldn't sell this stuff at any minimum CPM. So we were like sort of right time, right place for a couple of young, aggressive media buyers kind of executing on behalf of their clients. We had some pretty cool clients, Match, Classmates, Orbits, and very quickly realized 
that we were a customer of an early sort of business model called the ad network, increasingly, because we were able to get scale and efficiency and, and all that stuff, and started Undertone almost as an experiment to see if we can branch off into that business model, which um, we saw was more attractive than the agency one in terms of sort of like ability to scale and profit margins and so on and so forth. That was 2002. And that thing took off. Then to your point, became the next sort of 15 years or so of my career and wouldn't trade it for anything in terms of the lessons learned, the team we built, the platform it gave me to work with lots of brands and, and ultimately do other cool things in the space leading up to investing today. Awesome. And obviously through that that undertone period, it gets to $100 million in annual revenue, you sell the business, and then you decide, well, I've been operating for 15 years as a founder, plus years before that as an employee. Now I'm going to be a venture capitalist. So I guess talk us through the, the math capital, the starting of it, what was the original sort of concept and thesis, sure. how long you've been doing it, and ultimately how's it going? Sure. Yeah. I was a very amateur angel investor for some years prior to leaving after we sold the business to Parion. I invested in mostly like friends companies who having done it for over 10 years, a couple of folks could sure. you know, build a company, sell it, start another one, you get the opportunity to invest. That was a path that was not uncommon amongst folks that have been doing it for some time. There were some individuals that did it far more prolifically, arguably professionally, and really well from a track record perspective. Names like Bill Wise, the Goodhart brothers, Brian O'Kelly, and Joe Zawadzki. Joe is someone who I had sort of like gotten to know over the, the years of doing this. I had great respect for guys, absolutely brilliant. And I started talking to him about investing, wanting to tap into his deal flow. Because Joe, to give you some context, over the course of 10 years or so, invested in almost 70 companies. Those companies sort of starting in 2009, ending around 2018, when we launched the fund, included Moat, Integral Ad Science, AppNexus, Credit Karma, Data Miner, Accordant Media. I mean, if you just sort of juxtapose that against a 10-year fund, you'd probably put his investing track record and probably others that were doing it similarly at the time in a top decile in terms of performance. And Joe said, hey, the investing stuff is fun, also hard to scale. But I think there's something to this idea of investing in like what we know, right? Investing in MarTech and ad tech, being able to really expand it with more capital, more resources, ability to sort of professionalize everything that several of us had been doing as individuals. And uh, why don't we just like partner up and do it as a fund? So it was a unique opportunity for me to one, scale a lot of what I'd done professionally in terms of like knowledge and career and track record and everything like that to work with somebody who, who I greatly admired and you know, would love to work with it at, at some point. And then three, we felt at the time, if you think about a few years ago, it was not the best environment to be starting or investing in MarTech and ad tech. It was still, you know, sort of like not a lot of high-flying public comps, exit valuations were lower, still had a bit of a disdain in the sort of like minds of generalist venture capitalists. So we were like, if we believe in this and not many other folks were really believing in it at the time, this could be a great time actually to start a fund because ideally you want to start it when not too many people are paying attention, valuations are more reasonable. And fast forward to today, three, four years later, it seems like that, again, this stuff takes time to really know if you're any good. Seems like it was Probably a good time to start a fund focused on MarTech and ad tech, given the, the state of the space and all the great things going on four years later now. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's that that old Warren Buffett line of be fearful when everybody else is greedy and greedy when everybody else is fearful. Yeah, I mean, um, that sounds like that's what you did, right? Yeah, when we launched the fund, I think Joe might have actually dropped that line and it was like picked up in, in some of the article coverage and we believed it. We believed most importantly in the future of like MarTech and AdTech and digital media, but also number two, probably something to the idea of if you can be you know zagging when everybody's zigging, you might end up obviously driving disproportionately higher returns. Absolutely. Okay. And so a couple of the core categories that you're focused on in the fund. Yeah. CTV, identity, and maybe commerce media, I guess. How do you pick the winners? I mean, you're very early stage. I mean, like Series A, even seed round. Mostly seed. Yeah. Mostly seed where there's nominal revenue, nominal customer base, nominal like traction of any kind. I mean, are you just betting on the jockey, not the horse? For the most part, and, and seeing the general tailwinds across those categories, is that the... Yeah, I mean, that's pretty well said, right? So of the 40, it's actually 48, some of the investments we've made over the course of the past few months, we haven't publicly announced and, and put on the website. Of the 48, a good 75% of our first investments are seed or even earlier, pre-seed. Sometimes we'll invest as the only institution alongside some angels. So we invest at the earliest stage, I think. Some thoughts on that. Number one, yes, the earlier the stage of the company, the more you need to weight what I would call sort of the three or four categories that you might use for investment criteria. They are team, vision, market, and then it's like product traction, ability to sort of add value as an investor. So the further along you get to the latter part of that set of heuristics, right, there'll be more traction to go on. But with most of our investments being far earlier stage, we'll disproportionately weigh team and vision over over anything. So yeah, I mean, I think A, there's the, the earlier the stage, the the more we're you know sort of like waiting team. B, I think because we're so early stage focused, the fact that we're so sector focused and we're still operators, Joe's obviously still you know d- deeply operational. I think gives us an edge. And then we've got the sort of like broadheading of marketing and media and ad tech. And then below that, a lot of our thoughts come from the market, right? And where's the market going? And we clearly see opportunity. And that's in some of the areas that you mentioned. There's so much going on in the space constantly, constant change. How do you find the right opportunity and the right founder? Is it just their experience in the space and backing that founder till death do us part? Or is there some uniqueness to individual founders that stand out? Yeah, I think a few things. Number one, we've got our view on where the space is going and where we think sort of most interesting and you know, presumably investable pockets are, right? You named a few of them. And some of that is just earmarked towards where's the most disruption happening? Where's the most sort of like dollars moving in terms of the potential, right? So then it's like quite easy to start prioritizing things like identity and CTV and, and a few other things. In terms of how we will, I think, sort of like evaluate team and founders, it's a few things. It's obviously number one, if it's a founder that we know, right? If it's, this is their second business, this is their third business, they've had a track record of success before, we'll take that into consideration. It's not necessarily like a slam dunk. Obviously, we'll you know bet on second time founders but we're seeing some of our own data showing that that's 
directionally a, a good thing to do. Because so many of our investments are like first-time founders, domain expertise, or some like unique insight of why did you start this business? That then becomes like really important because while we know where identity is becoming super important or CTV is becoming super important, we're not necessarily like in the depths of the market the way a lot of these teams are, right? So the more that they can you know, kind of tell a story and help us understand from their unique perspective why they're building this specific business in this niche, that's where we'll start to get really excited. Got it. Got it. And so take another step back, I guess, thinking of you spent 15 years as an operator, mm-hmm. the last four years or so as an investor, means say 20 years or so, I guess, even before that as a sales rep at about.com, 20 plus years in the space. I mean, that seems like an eternity. So what's the next 20 years look like? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to tell you what I was doing in the year 2000. Uh-huh. I think I was in like eighth grade. So I guess what's the next 20 years look like? As you think about writing these checks and investing in these businesses, you're looking at the next three to five, eight years, maybe, but you're also looking at what the future of those entities looks like Yeah, and trying to write checks for the next group. So mm-hmm. what's the prediction for 20 years out? Got it. Let's talk about first the difference between 2000-ish, right? And 2021. Like the market was so small back then. The market was largely US. The market was largely like display advertising. I can remember when the sort of like digital ad market in the US was a billion dollars and that was a big deal. Now you're talking numbers that are 100x that, right? So it's A, the market is larger and then the market is global, right? So you've seen in the course of 20 years, like all of these shifts driven not necessarily by just like consumption, but just like broadband penetration, mobile phones in 6 billion hands. Like there's a lot of big stuff out there that makes, I think the next 20 years so much bigger than the past 20 years, right? So I think it's number one, take a step back. The opportunity is bigger than it's ever been before. Number two, what has changed again in the past 20 years, right? Like back then, you probably remember anything you were doing was on, maybe it was a laptop, maybe it was a PC, full stop. You may have had a mobile phone. It was a little, little Nokia that you're probably just used to, to call people back and forth, maybe some simple texting, right? Now, the digital devices that we have and the connectivity and the scale is just like, it's bonkers. How many more sort of like connected devices that there are today and how literally everything that can become digital is quickly becoming digital. And we're talking about a market that was $80 billion television. Maybe all of it, maybe some of it starts to make its way into what is now an $8 billion CTV market. But I would say darn near all of it is going to become addressable in some way. Right. So then there's all of these new markets opening up in terms of just the ability to expand digital from what it once was. What does that then require? That then requires like an entirely new set of infrastructure to be built to make that happen. Right. So everything from the identity layer, everything from the ability to sort of use machine learning and AI in a much more sort of like tangible way. What does the implication of you know autonomous driving mean 
from a consumption perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like you sort of open up audio. Now we've got all these devices that are voice enabled and that's a market that is, the scale is already there. What does it become from a marketing perspective? So it's like the future is so large and so sort of like yet to be built. Hopefully now after a couple minutes of, of walking through that mental model, it explains why we're like so excited to be investing right now ahead of all that stuff. Cause we think arguably the next 20 years makes the first 20 years look like child's play. Interesting. Love it. Love the prediction. Totally agree. I think you just said that television is going to be $80 billion addressable market. That's what I heard. Yeah. That's amazing. Totally agree. I think the next 20 years is going to be 100x. So, okay. You spend a lot of time on this marketing ad tech media thing, just like I do. Next question would be, outside of this wild and crazy world that we find ourselves in, of this media stuff and this MarTech ad tech stuff, what other innovation, just personally or like your own sort of nerd out, paying attention to thing, are you has got your eye? What innovation has been going on the last couple of years? You mentioned sort of driverless cars, but I guess just broadly, not marketing, not media innovation that's that you got, that you're paying attention to. Yeah, I'll give you two. I'll give you one that's sort of inside and adjacent to the space, one that'll be outside. So voice is still so early in terms of the usage, but we've got a couple of investments in in voice companies. And what we're seeing in terms of what the capabilities are is fairly mind-blowing. And one of my bets is voice becomes one of the next great vectors of growth for commerce, right? So like today commerce media is going to be like a huge, it already is a big market, obviously, with like Amazon and Walmart, so on and so forth. And then you've got a whole list of billion dollar retailers retailers that are all entering into the market with some sort of ad platform in some way. I think today that then you know, sort of like eats you know, media in, in a lot of ways. But the usage of devices that have a voice capability, whether it's the Amazon Echo devices, the Google Home devices, but frankly, like the voice search on your phone, the voice search that, you know, is, is or the voice capabilities that, that are in all these devices that, that are with us for the majority of our day, the usage is spiking. Like, I think there was a stat that like half of all searches happen, you know, sort of across all devices, all platforms happen via, via voice. And I think users or consumers or people rather are being in some ways, you know, retrained in terms of their habits with these voice activations, which are just like seamless and easy and and so on and so forth. So I think that voice will start to change how people buy things, maybe how people rebuy things, maybe how people arrive at their decisions. I think that's super disruptive. So I pay a lot of attention to voice. Outside of that, I think it's impossible to ignore what's going on in very broadly speaking, like Web3, decentralization, crypto, the sort of like the parallel financial system that's being built just like literally right next to the traditional financial system. And uh, one can imagine the the implications of of that for the entire world are way larger than anything we've talked about as it relates to media and marketing. Love it. Okay. Looking at time, I want to ask and spend in the last 14, 15 months sort of in a very strange world, all of us. You're spending all day, I think, on Zoom and talking to founders, talking to whoever. 
Yeah. Outside of your day job, what are you spending your time on? Yeah. So thankfully, we're recording this in June of 2021. The worst of the pandemic for us here in the U.S. is hopefully behind us. Things are starting to open up and, and emerge. So I had like my pandemic hobbies, so to speak, right outside of kind of family and everything like that. I was sort of like doing things around the house, reignited my uh, sports card collection, reignited my passion for musical instruments in, in some ways. But prior to kind of being locked in the house for a year, I was a big enthusiast of martial arts, believe it or not. And that obviously is one of the least COVID-friendly activities that one could think about. But now that I'm vaccinated, uh, a lot of the folks that I you know trained with previously are vaccinated. We've started beating each other up again. So outside of work and family, I'm a fairly serious Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu enthusiast. So between the art itself and then the sort of like training that one needs to do to be able to do it at a high level and not get hurt and be able to hold their own against folks that are younger and way more in better condition than, than they are, that takes a, a lot of time, quite frankly. Spend a lot of time training, believe it or not. Love it. I'm not doing any martial arts, but I feel you on spending a lot of time training. Somebody convinced me a couple months ago to do a, a triathlon. That's awesome. And so I signed up for the Chicago triathlon that's at the, at the end of August. And so I'm doing... I mean, probably 25 hours a week of training right now. Oh, it's pretty intense. That's fantastic. Six days a week, a couple hours a day. It's a lot. And it's been, but it's been fun. Do you have a background in, you clearly no. have a background in, in athletics? I mean, 20 years ago, I played baseball in high school, mm. but no, not really. I just got really active. We're sort of permanently stuck at home. A year and a half ago, I started getting really active running. Is a good way to get outside, but still socially distant activity. And that sort of transitioned into this triathlon thing. And so I just started the training a few weeks ago. And it's been a lot of a lot of work, but it's pretty fun. Yeah. And I'm having a good time. It's like swimming and biking. Either thing is not something that I'm I'm super natural in. And I'm not really even a very natural runner, but a lot of training has been fun. So that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Could we go back to something that you said, but didn't necessarily dig into? You sort of like made the statement that we've invested in a, in a lot of companies in a short time period. You want to talk about that for a yeah. second? Yeah. So that is by design. And unless you're sort of like in the middle of the sort of like your kind of ins and outs of early stage venture and the, the inside baseball of it all, a lot of folks like look at it like you're like super active. We approach it from a couple of angles. So number one, Early stage investing, some of the best firms that have been doing this for a decade or more, one of the common traits of all of them, because we looked at this, is they'll make a lot of investments because of something called the power laws. And again, this is sort of like inside baseball stuff, but for many, not all, but like many early stage investment portfolios and investors and venture firms, a disproportionately small number of companies drive the majority of their turns. Yep. Right. So you're sort of like loss is known in terms of investing in companies, whether that's a defined check size, but your upside is unknown and it can be quite asymmetric, right? You write a 50K check into a number of companies. You know what the downside is, right? It's 50K in each, but the upside is unknown, right? So there's this like sort of like portfolio construction theory that tracks back to if you're investing at the earliest stages, being an active investor gives you the best shot of being in a portfolio that has that number of 
They're sort of like small, sometimes they're called unicorns, that drive the sort of majority of returns. So it's A, there's that. B, I've got to sort of look into portfolios like Joe's that validate that, right? So it's sort of like design. And then three, we like to be super early and roll up our sleeves and work alongside teams, ideally sometimes ahead of institutional rounds. So we then invest across the life cycle. So for some companies where we've invested in the seed or the pre-seed, we've continued to invest in the seed, the A, the B, so, so on and so forth. So there's a real sort of like wonky portfolio construction theory that underlies from the outside looks like a super active, like, whoa, these guys are writing a lot of checks. What's the science behind this reason for doing all of it? Got it. Love it. Thank you for that walkthrough. That's very helpful for the amateur venture capitalist in all of us. Yeah. There's plenty of reading material out there for you. Yes. One is so inclined. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So I think the, the last question I had for you is where can the audience find more about you, about Math Capital, what you're up to? Yeah, sure. So you could check out Math Capital and, and our portfolio at www.mathcapital.ventures. I am increasingly less active on social media than I used to be, but you could always find out you know, what's going on and the latest on Twitter, just um, at Eric Franchi or uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Eric Franchi, thank you for joining us for another episode of Infitor Data Solutions Identity Revolution. Audience, we'll see you next time. Awesome. Thank you, Corey. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to Identity Revolution. For more data-driven discussion, subscribe to Identity Revolution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for more on how Infutor can improve your data strategy across your entire enterprise, visit infutor.com.